We're continuing this morning in our series about the church and our strategic plan, as we've been for the past few weeks. We've reflected in a bit on this need to be biblically thoughtful about what the church is and what the church does. Not because the New Testament is unclear about these things, but because there are so many other ideas floating around about uh, what churches should be and what churches should do that aren't really rooted in the Bible. Our strategic plan also is designed to help us make choices about how to prioritize and to invest our limited resources. And as we've talked about, we have our, our mission statement, our four pillars, which we call them four areas of ministry focus, uh, outreach, and of course Nick preached recently about our global connections, and we've seen with the example of Togo. We talked about building community. Pastor Steve preached about that last week. Uh, we'll talk about worship, and this morning we're talking about discipleship. On New Year's Day, when we introduced this series, I preached on what's called the Great Commission from Matthew 28, in which Jesus gave marching orders to his 11 disciples. And the main idea of the commission is to make disciples. And then it talks about how they do that as they're going, and that it involves baptism, and that it involves teaching. And we talked a little bit in that sermon about how what Jesus is, is calling them to do is teach them to obey, not just teach them information, but teach them information in such a way that it causes their lives to be different, and it causes them to obey Jesus. And so that's kind of the idea that we want to continue to deepen and reflect upon this morning. Um, making disciples, of course, is much more holistic than just teaching. It's connected to outreach, right? As we're reaching out, we're making new disciples, and we're also being made into uh, more mature disciples as we do that. It involves worship, right? It's connected to the building of community. All of our pillars kind of grow together in this idea of making disciples, but the focus more narrowly on this one is, is about the ministry of teaching, and we reflect that the earliest churches in the New Testament were devoted to the teaching of the disciples of Jesus. Our text this morning is from Colossians chapter 1. It starts in verse 24, and this is actually one sentence in the Greek, so we're glad for different kinds of punctuation in English, because there's a lot here in this one sentence. It's on page 833 in your pew Bibles, and there's a sermon outline as well. God's word for us this morning. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but, now, but is now disclosed to the saints." To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do pray you would speak to us through your word and that these words would resonate in our hearts and that you would change us. Uh, give me the, your words to speak and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a bit of background about the book of Colossians. 
The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church. This uh, is a town in modern-day Turkey. There's not much of a town there, just some ruins now. It's an interesting letter because Paul is writing to this group of people that he'd never met. This wasn't one of the churches that he had planted, as we read about in the book of Acts. This church was started by a man named Epaphras, who seemed to be from that town, but later became a companion of Paul, as he's mentioned later on in the letter. This town was about 100 miles away uh, east from Ephesus. The two share a a number of common features between the two letters. If you read Colossians and you read Ephesians, they sound in many uh, places quite a bit alike. Some think that Epaphras was converted in Ephesus when Paul was in Ephesus, and then he went to his hometown and began the church there. Uh, So... As well, this, uh, it says in this letter that there's one that's sent to Laodicea and that they're supposed to exchange letters. And so Paul understands that his letter isn't just for the particular needs of this church. It is in this occasion. But it's also a broader letter for churches to share uh, this idea of teaching and discipleship, which Paul has, of course, down for uh, until us um, today. The occasion of the letter is related to the problem of false teaching that seems to be creeping into the church. And it seems to have alarmed Epaphras and in his communication with the church and also thus Paul. And so Paul is is writing the letter. False teaching takes a lot of different forms. Um, Some things fall sort of obvious into categories of heresy. Other things are much more subtle. Scholars have a lot of theories about the, what was the Colossian heresy and what is Paul writing against. It's not clear to us what the heretics were teaching because Paul doesn't give us their arguments. What he does is he points to Jesus. So there are two particular sections in which there are foundational truths being taught about the person and work of Jesus. And I think that's an important strategy. It's something for us to note. It's kind of like this story, I don't know if it's true or not, I've heard it, that people uh, in years ago used to, in banks and in law enforcement, used to study real money in order to spot counterfeit money. And so the idea is that if you're extremely familiar with the real thing, then the errors and the false ones are easier to spot. And it's opposite the idea of what we might think. We might think of, like, they study all the way that people make counterfeit money, but The way this illustration works is that they study the real money so that they can tell when it's counterfeit. And I don't know, again, I don't know if this is actually true, but this is Paul's strategy. He's saying, I want you to know Jesus, who he really is. So no matter what the heresy is, you can sort it out and you can understand who he really is. And so that's why in this letter, Paul talks so much about the person and the work of Christ. In our section today... Paul is talking about his ministry of discipleship as it relates to this church. And again, this is uh, something we need to keep in mind, that he didn't actually know them. But he's speaking to them and also speaking a little bit more broadly. So it says, it begins in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. There's a lot in this verse, isn't there? Paul rejoices in what was suffered What he means really is his sufferings for them. Rejoicing in suffering, of course, is something that we encounter a number of times in the Bible. It's an idea that seems foreign to us and difficult. 
Our culture particularly has made suffering into an enemy, right? It's something to be avoided as much as possible. We want to hide from suffering, and when it's unavoidable, we want to try to just, like, right, grin and bear it and then try to figure out how long this will last so that we can know how soon it will be over. But it's harder to try to ask the questions about how should we live during a period of suffering? How can we grow as a result of this kind of experience? These questions are usually answered only partially. They're often answered only in hindsight with the perspective of time. But these are the questions that have promises in the Bible that are attached to them. Promises that suffering for the sake of Christ is not in vain. That it's not a wasted effort. That suffering can produce fruit. We have good reasons to trust that. The Bible makes all kinds of promises about it. And of course we have the example of Jesus. Exhibit A, Jesus. Suffering produces fruit. And for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So he brings together this joy and suffering. And Paul does the same thing. And it's a challenge, right? But Paul is even, like, he's laying the foundation here of what it means to live in, in and through a difficult situation. And he continues in this verse by saying that what he's doing is filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions. You have to think about that for a minute. Now, you could read that in such a way that it sounds almost blasphemous, right? We know from the Bible that there's nothing that's lacking in Christ's afflictions. He took the full measure of God's wrath as the punishment for humanity's sin. It is finished, was Jesus' cry from the cross. So in that sense, there was nothing lacking. There's nothing yet to be made up. There's nothing to be added to the afflictions of Christ, but it, so what is Paul talking about here? There's another sense in which we get the idea that the sufferings of God's people for the sake of the church, that is, the sufferings of God's people for the body of Christ, are not yet complete. And there's this picture in Revelation 6 of the heavenly court of the martyrs calling out for vindication and justice. But they're told to wait until their number is complete. More suffering is to come. More sufferers, more martyrs will be added. And Revelation gives us this symbolic language, of course, this picture that makes it seem clear that the sufferings of the church are connected to, are, are described by the sufferings of Christ. Paul says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. What is he talking about? He's talking about the sufferings like Jesus experienced, or the sufferings for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the church, are, are born by him. And so that this idea of filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions is what's lacking is a demonstration of the afflictions of Christ to those who weren't there, to those who haven't heard this message. Paul is showing us that the afflictions of Christ in some small way are being reflected through the sufferings that Paul experienced. John Piper tells the story of an itinerant missionary in India who was traveling from village to village on foot, bringing the gospel to people. After a long day of walking, he came to a village. He sought to share the story, but the people didn't want to listen. And they, uh, they 
ignored him and told him to go away. So exhausted and discouraged, he went a little way outside of the village and he lay down to sleep underneath a tree. When he woke up, the whole village was standing around him. And they said that they had become curious and went out to look at him while he was sleeping. And when they saw his blistered and worn feet, they realized that his message must be important. They concluded that only a holy man would suffer so much to bring his message and that it was wrong of them to have rejected him. And so they wanted to hear what he had to say. His suffering for their sake was a demonstration of Christ's afflictions. And it made this village realize something of the importance of the gospel message. This is the picture that Paul is painting, right? His sufferings for the sake of Christ's body, even for this church full of people that he'd never met, are part of what it means to fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. These sufferings are not pointless. They're chosen by Paul in the path of following Jesus under the sovereign plan of God as part of what it means to be a disciple. And this connects, of course, to the whole idea of Paul's ministry in the next couple of verses. I've become its servant. That is the church, church's servant. By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Paul is a servant. God made him a servant. God entrusted him with a commission, a charge, to present the word of God in its fullness. And so for Paul, this is a stewardship issue, right? This is his life's work. It's his calling from the Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9 forward. This marks Paul. The suffering that Paul will experience is through that that the message goes out to the Ephesians, then multiplied to the Colossians, and multiplied and spread around the whole Mediterranean world and beyond. This message is a long-hidden mystery, Paul says, and then in the next verse he talks about what it, what it is. To them, God has made known to Uh, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says that the saints have received this. That's the holy ones. That means all of those who follow Jesus, not just some kind of special class of people. And that's the way it works in the New Testament language. They've had this mystery revealed to them. This mystery is glorious and rich. This mystery is Christ in you, The hope of glory. Now that's an amazing statement, isn't it? Hidden for generations and ages was the promise that God was moving towards his people in such a profound way that the Messiah would actually live in us. And we see that this uh, happens in, in Acts 2, in Pentecost, that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes and takes up residence and dwells in the hearts of all who believe in Jesus. This, Paul says, this is a mystery worth suffering for. This is a message of great hope, of a glory that's yet to be revealed. The Spirit is this deposit, right? It's this guarantee of a perfect and eternal life which is yet to arrive. Our sentence closes with the idea of what this looks like in Paul's life and ministry, verses uh, 28 and 29. So we, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, 
so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Interestingly here, the subject shifts. Paul has been talking about himself, and now he talks about, and now he says we. It's not just Paul, but it's through him, through, it's through his uh, companions, it's through the church that Christ is proclaimed. Not the counterfeits, but the real the long-awaited Messiah and the only Savior of the world is announced to everyone. He's come near to live within his people. There's some interesting things to note in this verse. First, in the Greek original, the word everyone, really it's all people, uh, is repeated three times. Our New International, our Pew Bibles, delete one of them because it sounds so redundant in English. But it really reads like this. Him we proclaim, admonishing all people, and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present all people mature in Christ. Paul is saying his ministry and this message is for everyone. It's for those inside the church. It's for those outside the church. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's, he sees his role to move people, everyone, towards perfection in Christ. This is a universal task. This isn't just for some people or the spiritually elite. And this proclamation involves uh, admonition and teaching. Admonishing means to instruct. It often has this sense of correcting or warning, right? If you're admonished, it means that someone else has set you straight, right? They've sort of corrected you. Teaching means to instruct you so that you learn something. It's very similar to the to the English word. So there's something of an overlapping but double purpose here. The idea is that we're giving someone information that they don't have that also corrects or encourages or sets them straight on some of their perhaps wrong ideas. And all of this has a purpose. That each one would be perfect in Christ. Some translations say mature in Christ in English. I think that's better. Than perfect. You know, Paul knows the word can mean both things, but Paul knows that perfect won't happen in this life for everyone. Of course, he's very realistic about that. But he argues that the point of his ministry is to move people towards maturity, not just in the life to come where there's perfection and glorification, but in this life. That the idea is to move people towards maturity in Christ. And again, this is a goal worth laboring for, this is a goal worth suffering for. Here in the last phrase, we get the very important point, though, that this struggle isn't Paul by himself. Instead, it's the power of Christ that works within him powerfully. All of this really wouldn't be good news if not for this last phrase. Otherwise, the text would just be this message of human-powered religion. It would be, look at Paul, the super-apostle. Paul's going to tell you what to do. Paul's going to say, don't do this, do this, do the right thing, don't do the wrong things, be perfect. Okay, now you go and learn from him and be mature too, right? That is human-powered religion. And Paul says, that's not what message I have for you, because Christ is in me and he's working. It's his power. And I'm, I'm suffering, but it's his power. I'm struggling, but he's the one who's working in and through me. Otherwise, this is just a message of law and condemnation and the exaltation of Paul, right? 
But he tells us it's not, it's not about me. It's not about my ministry. It's about Christ working within me. And Christ doesn't just motivate him and give him the goal, but Christ gives him the power beyond himself to move towards this goal of ministering through suffering to all people. That's what our sentence is about. What does it mean for us today? First, I think, and kind of obviously from the very beginning, we recognize we're in need of this ministry, right? Directly from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we find it in this letter, we need to hear this. His labor and his toil on the behalf of the Colossian church in the middle of the first century A.D. is of great benefit to us, right? We see Jesus more clearly because of the proclamation of Paul in this letter. And so there's something about that that's really amazing if you think about it. The presentation of Christ's afflictions is still at work. Paul is still filling this up because we're hearing the message, because we're reading this letter. And in this letter, we see more clearly the need for sound doctrine, as we remember in the context that there were these false teachers. We remember that what we believe, what he's telling us, is that what we believe about Jesus is really important. And of course, in our day, it's not just liberal scholars, right? It's our neighbors, it's our coworkers, our friends, it's everyone around us oftentimes who likely have wrong ideas about Jesus. And so, like Paul, he's saying we're called to proclaim him clearly. And it seems to me, you know, it's, it's difficult, of course, to talk to people about religion. It's difficult, but rather than talking about church, rather than talking about social issues, what Paul is saying is talk about Jesus. Have people read his words. Encourage people to get to know him. Introduce people to him so that he can speak into their hearts and their lives. For us in the church, the passage calls us to a spiritual self-assessment. If we need to move towards maturity, that means we're not mature. Certainly, of course, we see this picture in the Bible that there's like a spectrum of maturity and that some people are more mature as believers than others, but it's not something you can really put yourself on the spectrum, right? It's not something that you can really compare to one another because no one has arrived at maturity. We all have immaturities. We all have idolatries in our hearts. We all have weaknesses and blind spots. Some of us are better at hiding those flaws than others, But so often the things that we can't see about ourselves or the things that we don't want to see about ourselves are the things that really hinder us from growing in our faith. It's in the deeper places of our hearts where things really need to change. And sometimes I think we would rather die than confront that. That we would rather just coast through life then confront the deep things in our hearts that really need to be changed. And sometimes those are the real things that make us hard to love and make it hard for us to love others. Studies show that a lot of people in the church, you know, as they do these demographic studies in America, I'm not talking about this church. A lot of people, you know, these studies show that a lot of people in church are stuck spiritually. They're stagnant in their spiritual growth. They've sort of plateaued or kind of backslidden as a disciple. And if this is the case, then the most fundamental question as we encounter a passage like this is, do you want to grow? 
even the question is, are you willing to do what it takes to grow? Can you face the real you without sugarcoating it and say honestly what is lurking in your heart? I have a problem with anger or lust or greed, and I really need to tell someone and get help. I'm really jealous of my neighbors, and I want their house or their boat or their vacation or their car or whatever it is. My kids or my job or my status or my reputation is my idol, and that's the thing that really motivates me in life, and I lose my identity if I lose that thing. Or I don't believe that Jesus will really take care of me. Or I think that the next thing is the thing that will really make me happy because whatever it is, I I think I want it more than I want Jesus. Or I don't like something about myself, and so in order to make myself feel better about myself, I'm going to gossip about someone else, right? By the way, I heard a clip on the radio. This I didn't check to see if this is actually true, but why am I telling you then anyway? I heard a clip... (laughs) It's just an illustration. It doesn't have to be true. Uh, on the radio this week, there, someone was reporting that there was a study in Italy that was on brain-chemical interactions, right? And they found that certain chemicals that make us feel good are actually released in the brain when we gossip about someone. It's scary, isn't it, right? We have reasons for our immaturities, Sin for us is so often a coping mechanism of self-protection or of pride. Something, sometimes it makes us feel good. And we don't want to confront the reality about ourselves. So that's the question. Can you face the real you? Well, if we had to face the real, real us, I think we would all be completely overwhelmed. But Jesus does. And he sees the real us, and he loves us more than you can imagine or even describe. And he suffered great affliction so that the real us isn't the end of the story. The us that looks like Jesus is the end of the story. And he doesn't want us to live in this us that is so broken. How does this relate to the discipleship ministry of the church? A few weeks ago, and, uh, as on New Year's Day, as I was talking about the Great Commission, I tried to describe how making disciples is both a side-by-side kind of process, and it's also this kind of lead-follow kind of process. In Paul, we see the specific example of leading following. Paul is speaking to a young and immature and confused church, and they need to be taught, and they need to be admonished by him. And that's part of his calling from Jesus. That happens in the church. As we learn from those who are called to this kind of ministry, we call it uh, this sort of setting apart for ministry, we call it ordination as a way to describe what the officers of our church do. We make promises as a congregation to follow them. They promise to lead us well. These are serious promises. What we're doing in this kind of situation is we are entrusting our spiritual growth to one another, submitting to one another in love as a community of believers. Discipleship is also side by side, of course. Admonishing and teaching, that means loving each other enough to be real and honest. Trusting others so that we're able to hear the bad news, the real truth about ourselves, if they'll be honest with us. 
not pretending and faking our way through the Christian life, if we invest in this kind of discipleship, this passage, if this passage is telling us anything, it's telling us that we'll suffer. We'll suffer if we invest in the kind of discipleship that Paul is describing. Where we, I mean, it's hard, right? It's emotionally wrenching to try to confront someone in love, especially if you're mad at them. And it's devastating for us when we are confronted or accused. And sometimes it's true and sometimes it's false. Sometimes we feel so misunderstood. There are lots of reasons why it's hard to be a community and why it's hard to move towards maturity. But as I picture the discipleship ministry of the church, I think I I want it to be, Lord willing, something like a greenhouse. And a greenhouse is a place that stimulates and encourages the growth of plants, right? When the conditions outside are too cold or too hot or too dry or too wet or whatever, right? The Bible teaches us that God causes the growth. So there's no discipleship program that we can put together to guarantee people to grow spiritually and then you come out on the other side mature and perfect in Christ, right? There is no discipleship program. Contrary to what people will tell you, that does not happen because God causes the growth. But if we're in a greenhouse, then we can try to put together some kinds of things where we can grow and where we can worship together, where we can hear from God's word together, where we can share with one another side by side, lead, follow. It takes this kind of commitment to the body, which is a commitment in a way to suffering. But really, you suffer either way. You suffer out on an island, just sort of content with your own immaturity and idolatry. That's a different kind of suffering. There's a suffering that has a point, which is the suffering inside the body of Christ in which we love and wrestle and work through and commit to being a body because Jesus is at work, because Jesus has made that kind of commitment to us. We suffer due to one another's sin. We suffer as we try to love each other because we do it so imperfectly. But Paul is telling us that our sacrifices and our suffering as part of the church are worth it. It's worth it for us inside the church. It's worth it for the sacrifices that we make for those who are not yet inside of the church. Because there's a promise attached, right? That we've been entrusted with this world-changing message, the mystery that people have longed to see for years and years and years. And we have an encouragement on our side. Christ is in you. Christ is in you. There's hope of glory within us. He's committed to our growth. He's committed to the growth of our church. And that's good news for us this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for your word and how you speak to us. Father, we know that you are the one who's sovereign. We know that you're the one who causes the growth But we pray that you would make us uh, a greenhouse here. We pray that you would use our Bible studies and our programs and our worship services and all of the things that we do, our Sunday school, all of these things that we do. Help them not to be just busy work or going through the motions, but help them to be part of what it means for us to grow together as a body and towards maturity in you. Do that work within us. We ask it because we need your help. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.